This is Duke University. In addition to his management duties at Thinka, from two, 1996 to 2006, John directed Thinka's Global Mission Support Department. He also continues to serve as co-founder and executive committee member of the Microcredit Summit Global Campaign to reach 175 million of the world's poorest mothers with self-employment loans by the year 2015. He has given microcredit workshops and lectured widely at universities at home and abroad. John now lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he pursues a lifelong interest in watercoloring, has finished his screenplay, and continues his public speaking activities, and actively campaigns for an end to global poverty by the year 2025. Please welcome John Ash. Thank you. Gita, thank you so much. That was really a great introduction. Okay, question we did at lunch, we're going to repeat. How many of you are under 30 years of age? Raise your hands. <laughs> you are just the ideal audience because if you haven't heard this yet, I'll just, I never get tired of saying it. You are the generation that 20, 25 years from now will occupy all the positions of power in our society. You'll be the politicians, you'll be the government uh, leading the, uh, your respective bureaucracies, you'll be the talking heads of the media, you'll be, uh, you'll be just in charge. And it will be on your watch that humanity finally solves this millennium old problem of severe poverty. And uh, you're going to get to do it and we'll look back at you with more respect or as much respect on your generation as we look today on our parents' generation in, and their service in World War II and the heroism that they represented and the sacrifices. You're going to be another one of those great generations. And I know this because I speak to so many groups of young people. And to me, it feels like a tsunami. I call it the youth tsunami. It's just coming out of the ocean. It's unstoppable. And it doesn't take more than one out of a hundred of you, you know, to actually create the tipping point that will make the end of poverty, I mean, will make poverty history like Bono likes to say. So, um, you're my heroes and heroines, and uh, congratulations for the social consciousness you have that brings you to a class like this. And I, you make me wish I was 30 years younger so I could go back to school and apply to the Fuqua School of Business. This is just a great place with a great uh, agenda of social entrepreneurship. You guys are so lucky. This is just unique almost in this country. Uh, so. Uh, that said, let's, let's get into it. And I, uh, before I get into my path, my path is like a social entrepreneur. I want to just briefly cover the four or five statistics that I think grounds us all, that we should know them by heart because it sort of is a shorthand for saying why we have to have a passion, a fire in the belly to, 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 uh, to finally defeat poverty. What's happening on our planet? Well, first of all, the first statistic that just is an overwhelming statistic for me 
in 1900, there were 1.6 billion human beings on the planet. And 100 years later, 2000, the year 2000, there were 6.1 billion inhabitants on the planet. The digits just reversed, adding to the support burden of the planet for about 4.6 billion additional people to feed mostly in countries that could ill afford to support them and do not have the land resources, the food resources, the government service resources to take care of a population like that. So imagine just how horrendous. That's another tsunami. Secondly, because of that increase, rapid increase in, in just people, we've got uh, severe, po we've got half of the population of the planet today at least three billion people living on less than two dollars a day per capita income. And we call them the poor. They use two dollars a day as the poverty line, they're below the poverty line. And of those below the poverty line, a full billion, at least a billion plus people are living on less than one dollar a day. And if, if you can just imagine what it would take you to live like that, how to survive like that, how clever you'd have to be, how, 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 how psychically resilient you would have to be just to face the next day. Live your life in which you, your mind wouldn't be able to conceptualize things like a business and can I save and can I educate my children because all your energy is focusing on the next meal. How do I feed my kids today? That's 90% of your energy right there. Imagine, one-fifth of everybody on our planet lives like that. The third statistic, because of that severe poverty, we are losing, still, an estimated 28,000 children under the age of five every day to chronic malnutrition and hunger-related disease. That's over 10 million preventable deaths a year. And that is a rate of, of death that exceeds even the Nazi Holocaust, which we've read so much about, which I think was 6 million over, you know, seven or eight years. So, I mean, this is something, you've got your own Holocaust. Your generation has a Holocaust uh, to take care of here. And if you don't address it, your children and your grandchildren will hold you accountable and it'll be their problem to solve. Where this finally got to me is as a, as a Peace Corps volunteer, I once, visiting an orphanage, had a tiny baby that only weighed about four pounds, but she was over six months old, die while I was holding her. A nun had just handed her to me to just hold the baby and she was just palpitating. Her little heart was just going like this and her lungs were struggling for breath. Big eyes just glaring up at me, too weak to even cry. And the eyes seemed to be saying her last sight was me, my face, and she was saying, why is this happening to me? That was what I was getting from this little soul. And, and, and then she died. He just gave up. And so that is what every one of those 28,000 
happening to those kids. And so it's not a statistic, it's a real human being, helpless human being just, just dying. And I, and I find that something we just have to confront as, as a civilization and say, we won't tolerate that. We have enough resources so that this doesn't have to happen. Let's get our act together. The other statistic that I want you to remember is that while all this poverty is occurring, if you look at the distribution of income and consumption on our planet, the wealthiest 10% of the planet, which includes absolutely all of us in this room, and many, many more, the wealthiest 10% of our planet is consuming 86% of the planet's resources. To bring everybody up to our level of affluence would require two and a half additional planet Earths. The resources aren't there. And the 86% consumption is just totally not sustainable. And how many of you have read Gerald, Jared Diamond's book, Collapse? Well, he's, uh, he's looked at all the major collapses of society, uh, or a whole bunch of them, and he has pretty much, the story is, almost in every single case of previous civilizations that collapsed, they, they just consumed their resource base until there were no more trees, the soil was gone, uh, and then, when food got scarce or when those resources got increasingly scarce, eventually they just started to fight. War with each other, to just it was a war for survival and in some of these societies it actually turned to cannibalism at the end, like on Easter Island and other places where it ended that way until even those who were the cannibals died. They just destroyed themselves. It's a pattern that has repeated itself throughout thousands of years. And so we have to get really serious about this because it's, it's global warming is part of the issue. Poverty is part of the issue. We've got a, a complex of problems that really call for our attention and our seriousness. And unfortunately, from my point of view, I've given up on government as the only institution that's supposed to deal with poverty. For the last 60 or 70 years, we have given over the job to government. We've said, it's too big a problem for us. That's government's job, take care of poverty. They've bungled it. There's more poverty now than ever before. We simply cannot trust our government and our government bureaucracy to, to spend our tax dollars efficiently and effectively in a way that will stop poverty. And so one of the things we'll talk about at the very end of my comments is precisely how do we take the responsibility back? How do we just say it's our planet, we know how to fix it as well or better than our government does, we can do it more efficiently and less expensively, let's do it ourselves, thank you very much, and let's tax ourselves but keep the tax and spend it ourselves instead of giving it over to a bureaucracy. I think we, you have this opportunity to solve global poverty. Uh, it's in your hands, and it's, it's so deceptively 
and it's so close, it's so easy, I almost don't sleep at night thinking how close it is to our capacity to end poverty on the planet. Certainly by cutting it in half by 2015, like the Millennium Development Goals say, and ending it by the year 2025. It can happen. All right. We've talked about poverty. And we've talked now, now let's talk about just a little about my path as a social entrepreneur. I hear that's a fun thing to do at a business school is find out where did this guy come from? Well, let me start out. I, I, I went to school at Johns Hopkins University. I majored, I got a BA in history, which um, probably wasn't that a marketable a, a degree. So marketable degrees aren't necessarily a prerequisite for working with poverty. If I could do it, you can do it. History, okay, and um, I set a record at Johns Hopkins, an academic record. I was a brilliant student, and uh, my record was that I, I graduated with the lowest passing grade point average in the history of the school. <laughs> On a four-point scale, it was 2.00001. <laughs> I had an F for every A. So, I mean, so, you know, I, I was just not motivated. So if you've gotten off to a rocky start, <laughs> don't give up. You've got plenty of time to correct your free fall. You're going to be also a generation that may live to be 90 and 100 years of age. So you've got enough time in there to reinvent yourself with three or four careers. So don't get all excited, you know, about am I making the right decision? Do I go into business first and then go into the Peace Corps? Or do I go into the Peace Corps and then make money? Yeah, don't worry about it. If you make the wrong decision, you'll have time to correct it. Okay, so that's what I did. I, I, I went from uh, Johns Hopkins to the Peace Corps, and that's where I found myself. And I found, and this little baby, Angelita, really turned my head around about how serious it was. And I, I wanted to do something about making sure that we minimize the number of Angelitas that we were losing. Then I came back to the University of Wisconsin and got a degree, a master's degree in economic history, and then a doctorate in economics. And, and as part of the degree in economics, I got a Fulbright a fellow's grant to go overseas and do some field research on peasant farming practices. And I think I was another first because I um, changed my thesis topic three months into my stay in Peru. I stayed for 18 months. Somehow I just forgot to communicate to Fulbright. And the people I was going to interview with this wonderful survey questionnaire were all wiped out by a flash flood. And there was almost no point because I had picked the most exceptional year coastal Peru had ever had. So I said, I got to do something else and I'm just going to do it. And Fulbright never cared. I decided to be a, a landless laborer who just rented his labor services to the poor. So I had, a, I had 30 clients in coastal desert Peru, and I went around from farm to farm doing different agricultural labor tasks and documenting them. And I learned in that 18-month period just a profound respect for poor people. 
and speak of a fire in the belly, when you see what those people go through and the resource scarcities they face and what they get out of the ground in desert conditions and how they manage water resources from primitive irrigation ditches and, and the like, it's just amazing, it's phenomenal. And yet we outsiders who, well, we, we think we know everything and that what they do is kind of ignorant and primitive, but any one of us would die in three weeks if we were placed in that environment and asked to survive. So they're real geniuses at survival. I come I, after, after graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, the doctorate, I started my own consulting firm. And I started being a consultant to AID and a little to the United Nations. I had about 50 countries that I consulted in at one time or another in the space of 10 years. And I came, my, the, my, the theme of my, of my uh, consulting firm was bottom-up development. How do you get the uh, participation of low-income people in the design, management, and evaluation of the projects designed to help them? Because in development today and in development then, economic development has become an outsider's monopoly. The non-poor and the K Street consultants and everybody else are hired to to tell our government how to spend our dollars on poverty. And there's absolutely no consultation of the people that we're trying to help. And in 10 years of consulting and 50 assignments and hundreds of recommendations, not a single recommendation was ever followed. Of, of, uh, so at, after 10 years of consulting, I said, if I'm gonna see this done differently, I've gotta start my own organization. And uh, so on a flight to Bolivia around that time, uh, high over the Andes Mountains at 36,000 feet, um, on my second double bourbon, <laughs> God decided to drop a great idea through me or into my glass, I'm not sure which, but it was a nice warm feeling. <laughs> and it was an idea about, hey, why not just let the poor be their own bankers, capitalize them, let them decide who's worthy of a loan, how they want to spend the loan, let them supervise loan collection, and just, you know, let's put your money where your mouth is. And I thought that was just so brilliant, and I think God does that with us. By the way, I've never been a very godlike person, but uh, since then I've always believed in God because I know that didn't come from me, that came through me, not out of me. And, and so I made it my purpose in life really from that point on to just take this model and go with it. That first year in Bolivia in the middle of a devaluation of something like 8,000 percent devaluation of the Bolivian currency, we couldn't even make loans in local currency and we couldn't even, uh, well we could make loans in local currency. We created a program called, uh, we called it, started calling it Village Banking, and it was organizing groups of 50, in this case, 50 heads of household, men or women. The community members decided themselves who would represent the household, and 50, 50, 50, 50, we lent money to 
433 communities and reached 17,000 families in the space of 17 weeks. We did it that fast because the currency was devaluating so fast. AID didn't give me dollars, they gave me local currency, a million dollars of local currency to run this program. And, you know, every day, and one or two or three percent of the value of that money just frittered away sitting inside the banks. So we would show up with, uh, with our carryalls and gunny sacks, load up all these banknotes and go flying out to the villages. Indian runners, Inca style, would go organizing the village uh, probably three hours before the money truck arrived. They would bring out a table. We would give a presentation for half an hour of what a village bank was. We had a little visual aid to explain it to poor people. And then we said, okay, what do you think? We're gonna take a walk around your community while you guys talk it over. No obligation. And Call us when you're ready, and 10 minutes later, huffing and puffing, somebody would catch up with us and say, we're ready, we're ready. We come back, we would put a uh, couple pieces of paper on the, on the table, the piece of carbon paper, and we would get somebody from the community who could read and write to act, and we would narrate the contract. And then everybody would sign with their thumbprints, because most of them were illiterate. And these were great contracts because they were just the right-hand side of all these contracts were just thumbprints, thumbprints, thumbprints. But everybody was saying, I pledge to repay this loan and my thumbprint is my bond in front of all my neighbors. And that's why from the very beginning, we, I mean, that first year we had 97, 98% repayment. And we indexed the loans. The contract said, we're giving you so many million pesos, and it has the equivalent of so many sacks of potatoes at today's market price. And when you pay us a year from now, or whenever you decide to pay us back, you'll pay us either this amount of potatoes plus so many pounds more for interest, or you will pay us what that amount of potatoes is worth at the local market price at, on the day you sell us back. So pick whatever day you want to pay it back when the price is highest or lowest, whatever you want to do. We indexed. And because of that, it was just one of these things where in, the, in a financial crisis, the country's banking system had, had gone on strike. Even the central bank went on strike. All the commercial banks, the state banks, they all went on strike. And the only program in the country offering credit was us. And initially it was my consulting firm. And then aid says to us, well, but since we've given you this grant, you have to come up with a counterpart contribution. And my firm <laughs> didn't have a quarter of a million dollars. So I had to organize Finca as a foundation to go out and raise money to see if I couldn't get the counterpart. So that's how Finca was born in the year 1984. So that's the story of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, <laughs> except in reverse. Instead of robbing banks in Bolivia, we were creating banks in Bolivia, village banks. Um, two years after that, all the staff at AID Bolivia changed. 
And they said, we don't like this model. The new guys who came in, this is very common when you work with uh, State Department people and new teams come in. The newcomers always want to do something new and different so they can have a pedestal for their own ego. And so they hate the project, that, the favorite project of their predecessor. And the aide loved us, you know, and then they all left and the new guys came. They asked for our vehicles back. They asked for all the money that, we, uh, that was left. We had to go collect it back from the communities and give it back to AID. And that is the first and only time in the history of the Agency for International Development where they asked one of their recipients of a grant to give the money back. The only time. And we had to collect it back and, and basically shut 433 village banks. The next six years was like a voice crying in the wilderness. I was like a Johnny Appleseed trying to sell village banking through the nonprofit sector, especially U.S. organizations based in the United States. And that was another way I, I feel. I would never have designed it that way, but that's the way God, I guess, wanted it to happen. And it turned out to be the best thing that could have ever happened because Finca wasn't big enough had a big enough track record at that time to attract much donor funding. But Save the Children and Care and Foster Parents Plan, everybody else had million dollar budgets and they had the resources. As a result of that giveaway of the technology, today we call it open sourcing. I didn't, but in those days I just had no other choice. I just wanted this idea to go someplace. But because of that giveaway of technology in these workshops today, worldwide, there are over 800 village banking programs that mostly non-profit agencies based in the U.S. have gone out and organized and uh, in 50 countries. So what I had aspired for Finca to be like world conquest of poverty, you know, it turned out to be, actually it was a movement that began to develop. So. That's Finca's story, uh, and it's the beginning of a movement story. I want to say that right now, the microfinance movement, with Grameen uh, Bank, the, the leader in the West in terms of their, uh, their, uh, their, their microfinance model, Finca in the West, both working at the very lowest levels of, of uh, poverty, this movement has gone out and attracted now 10,000 microfinance institutions worldwide. So just imagine that. And of that, about 3,200 actually report to a, we created an entity called the Microcredit Summit Campaign. And so they ask for clientele growth year by year so we can monitor how well we're doing on our target of reaching. We had set out in 1997 with the Microcredit Summit campaign to reach 100 million families by the year 2006. And last year in Halifax in November we celebrated the achievement of that target. 100 million families with loans for self-employment. I don't know of anything in history that ever got that big, reached so many people. I, I know there's nothing in the history of human beings where something that is an empowering thing for poor people was allowed to grow that quickly. It's not even a government program. 
maybe the Marshall Plan spent more money and was a bigger entity, but you can't even touch the outreach that, that was achieved, 100 million. That's why you have so much buzz today about microfinance, because it is a huge, huge movement. And it is a, I, so huge I call it globalization from the bottom up. And this is a new term you can add to the lexicon of graduate business school lexicon, because you've heard globalization everywhere, right? But what do you think of with globalization? Big corporations, right? Expanding their market shares, going overseas to open up all those markets, right? That's globalization from the top down. That's what gets all the press. But if you actually measure how much corporations are investing overseas, and then compare it to globalization from the bottom up, which is how much is being generated by the microfinance movement, the latter, the bottom up globalization is actually much larger. Here's the kind of calculation I do to show you how big it is. Finca does a lot of research. We'll talk about that a little bit later. We have been uh, sending student interns to the field with Palm Pilots. Teams of up, uh, we, we recruit up to 50 interns a year to send them to the field to interview our borrowers and come back with interviews from 7,000, 8,000 borrowers a year. And we put that into big data bank and we, we track it by country and we can compare by country. And one of the things that we're learning is that the average Finca borrower <coughs> with a loan of $150 average is now earning from her business that, we've, that the loans, the Village Bank loans to this woman have financed about roughly $3 a day. Now, in the, in the sector of poverty and even severe poverty, an increase in family income of $3, of $3 a day is really astonishing. That's, that's like adding two extra hired laborers to the family. So it's amazing, $3 a day. And this is what the women have been doing, using to keep their children in school, their children are getting now past primary school. Many are getting a couple years of secondary. Some of them are completing secondary. There is hardly a Finca family anywhere in the world who hasn't, within its first two or three loans, installed electricity in their home. Many of them have installed water filters, created latrines. Many in Africa have bought cell phones. And it's a real business tool to have a cell phone in those societies. <coughs> But let's get back to $3 a day. $3 a day is $90 a month. Times 12 months, that's $1,020, no, $1,080 a year that wouldn't be there without microfinance. Now, if that average is representative of our movement, multiply that by 100 million clients, and you have $108 billion of new income at the bottom of the, of the pyramid. 
And that's not even the biggest impact economically. That's just the income generated that comes into the household. The second thing our research has told us is that our borrowers, most of them are buying and selling things. They go out and she sells tomatoes, she buys tomatoes wholesale, she marks up her tomatoes, and then she retails them. And it's on the markup, that's where her profit is. And if she uh, can sell those tomatoes in three days, she recycles her loan capital again and again and again. Well, we're finding that the average Finca client spends $300 a month in purchases of supplies for her business. That's outlays that are income to some other economic actors in her local economy. So the actual benefit is larger to the non-borrowers than to the borrower. And you take $300 a month, that's $1,200 a loan cycle of four months. And per year, that's about $3,600 of purchases. Multiplied by 100 million, and that is $360 billion. Add those two flows together and you reach virtually half a trillion dollars of income occurring because of microfinance lending. That's huge. That is really big dollars. Okay. Let's talk, finally, and just open it up to questions afterwards. Let's talk about where this is going and what your role is in completing this, this mission we have and how is it going to end poverty. First thing that's happening is that bottom down, I mean top down, bottom up, globalization, are, they're going to meet in the middle. It's not going to be corporations having to go all the way down to the bottom. What do corporations want that are expanding overseas? distribution system, distribu distributors. And what's already in place in millions of villages around the planet are potential distributors, microfinance clients. The children of microfinance clients were even better educated and now want to get into specific businesses themselves. It's ready to go. So I liken this merger to what happened in the year 1870 when the Transcontinental Railway was completed across the United States. One railway coming from the east to the west, starting at the Missouri River and coming west. Another starting in California and coming east. They both met at Promontory Point, Utah. They pounded the golden stake in the ground to link the two lines and at that moment in the United States there were a thousand miles of rail. Ten years later there was a million miles of rail. From that one juncture then the infrastructure just began to spread out. And that infrastructure, rail infrastructure, underwrote the biggest agricultural and industrial economy that the world has ever seen. That was 
one of the greatest historical breakthroughs, I think, in the history of capitalism. Well, one century later, a little more than one century, we're going to have something similar to that when using the analogy of the railways. Globalization from the top down meets globalization from the bottom up, and they're going to create a partnership there. And it's going to change the face of capitalism, as we've known it at least for the last couple centuries. And you're going to be, it's going to be on your watch that that happens. And just in the corporate sector, there's going to be perhaps thousands of companies trying to expand overseas who need people with background, with poverty, with speaking foreign languages, who you know can go over there and live under hardship conditions and find the distributors and that kind of stuff, almost Peace Corps type work. And there's going to be a big market for that. There's also going to be a big market for what is becoming a whole new career. How many of you are accountants or auditors or would-be auditors? <laughs> right. Well, one of the hottest new fields coming online is something that is called social auditing. Because as these corporations come into the third world, it's becoming very important for them to demonstrate that they're good corporate citizens. And they, they're dealing with very poor people and they just can't ride roughshod over these these potential distributors like they might have in the old days. So microfinance has been seen by many, many corporations as one of the great tools for the 21st century that they are going to be supporting as corporations. Not that they're going to fund microfinance necessarily, but that they're going to partner with microfinance programs. And once you do that, the whole, the whole auditing relationship changes because now audits up to now have been financial audits and investors what do they look at a financial audit and they make their investment decision on how good that financial audit looks like but now when they go overseas they will be required really to begin to get involved in social audits what is the social impact of this relationship with their uh, microfinance clients and if you're an investor and you're looking at an investment you want to make in the, in the field and you have one, one company over here that only provides a financial audit and another corporation over here that provides a financial audit and works with poor people through microfinance and has a social audit, I think you're going to go every single time to the program that shows the double bottom line. And it may even get to a triple bottom line when we put environmental compliance in as the third tier of auditing. But social auditing is coming on stream very, very quickly. And they're the people who are going to scamper around the, the, the planet following the financial auditors. And they're going to come in and they're going to say, show me your mission statement. How does your staff know that they're supposed to reach the poorest? And there'll be auditing microfinance institutions as well, if not preferentially. And so this is going to change. This is another one of the tools that's going to change the face of capitalism. So that's a career opportunity for you coming on, 
coming down the pike. Now, the way I think it's finally going to work out for young people and why I have such a faith that you're the ones who have the final solution in your hands is because most of you aren't married yet. Most of you don't have a house mortgage. Uh, you are accumulating debt for the repayment of a student loan. That you are doing, and we have to find some way to lobby to get Congress to pass an exemption for anybody who goes from graduate school into some kind of social entrepreneurship uh, program so that they're not forced to go work for the first corporate uh, corporation offers them a job or the first company that just comes by and says, yeah, we need you. And, and they do it, not because they love the work, but because they've got a loan to pay off. If we can get over that hurdle, then the perfect time for you to get overseas and, and get the contact with poverty is now. Right after you finish your academic studies, how do we get you overseas into internships where you're seeing this whole market from the bottom up? That's going to be your specialty. Fink, as I said before, we recruit about 50 graduate students a year to go overseas to do research on our clients. The rest of the movement is waking up to that same kind of use of university students for research in the field. It's a wonderful, wonderful way to get a view, to get into contact with poverty. And once you've seen it, like my experience with Angelita, you will be so profoundly moved that you will come back to this country with a fire in your belly like you have never, ever experienced in your life. And it's like, I think, Wendy used the word messianic. I mean, you will come back with this, we have to do something. It's just outrageous poverty and its consequences. We have to solve this problem. So. We want to create opportunities to get you overseas. Now, those of you who've been in the Peace Corps, those of you who've been missionaries, those who've been kids of uh, military families or missionary uh, parents or whatever, you've got a foreign language. How many speak a language already, a foreign language? Fantastic. Really quickly, just a few of you. Just shout it out. What do you, what do you speak? Spanish and Portuguese. Spanish and Portuguese. Hindi. Hindi. Chinese. On this side? Bengali. Bengali. Well, that's because a third of you are born from overseas, right? Mm -hmm. Roughly. Well, that's great. But now look, when you're in the job market, look who's going to have the advantage when people start looking for people they can use to help expand their programs. Corporations want to expand their programs overseas. Yeah, the Fukuya School of Business. Uh, you know, degree, uh, that's going to be important. I'm not saying it's unimportant, but language is like one of the most critical skills that, that will distinguish you in the competition for those jobs. And if you don't have any language now, you might consider taking, uh, let's say, uh, a summer and financing a um, two months at a language school in Cuernavaca or or in Guatemala and Antigua or in Quito, Ecuador, if it's Spanish, get the language down. 
because you're competing against Peace Corps volunteers. How many have been in the Peace Corps? Okay, that's, that's low by, by, you know, the normal standards that I, of groups that I talk to. But I mean, it's, it's, the it's the language speakers who have an edge in that competition. So that's one thing you've got to think about. As much as the degree, you've got to think about a language capability and for a region that makes sense to you that you want to work in. Okay, but, uh, okay, here is where I think uh, the market is really going to open up for interning opportunities. As I said before, I don't think we can trust government anymore to spend our resources widely. I think our government is broken right now. Maybe your generation will fix it. I think both parties are at fault. I'm not blaming Republicans or Democrats. It's just that our Congress approves billions of dollars for microfinancing. It has in the last decade, for example, almost 200 million a year. And it all, you know, they did the right thing. It's a bipartisan issue. Both parties support it. It goes through Congress. We have this new spending bill that goes to the bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy turns around and gives it to consulting firms to tell us how to do our job. That's how K Street dominates the way our money is spent. It's broken. None of it gets to the poor. The AID that used to, 15 years ago, fund startup programs with microfinance has completely gotten out of direct grants to practitioner agencies. They like umbrella projects that, that are only eligible, really, only consulting firms need apply. So what I think the solution is, is we've got to take it back. We've got to take the responsibility for foreign aid away from our government and take it back into our hands as citizens. And we can do a better job and we can raise the money ourselves and put far more of that money into the, in the, into the field doing the right thing than government ever could dream of. And I think if we let students organize all of that, manage it, research it, evaluate it, fundraise for it, it's going to be one of the most powerful things any generation in history has ever done. So one of the things I want to leave you with, I've got two um, papers. We have some printouts here. Okay, before, uh, before you go out, I've got two printouts. One is an invitation to apply for a Finca Research Fellowship for this coming summer. Get your applications in. It's a fierce competition. There's for, for about 50 openings, there's a like 150 to 200 students competing for that at least. But get your, get your applications in. The second thing is a little piece of paper called ASAP. And this is in my dotage, in my retirement. Uh, I have decided I want to put about a third of my energies into supporting an institution called ASAP, the Alliance of Students Against Poverty. And the concept underlying this Alliance for Students Against Poverty is that students would go out, tell the story of severe poverty, and get commitments, donations from individual citizens and families. And the commitment is a dollar a day. That's all we're asking. A dollar a day for those living on less than a dollar a day. Every person in this room could do that. Even the poorest among you could do that.
just simply by ordering half a sandwich instead of a full or a, one less Starbucks a week or a couple soft drinks less a week. I mean, even a homeless person could do this if they were motivated. But the idea is you say, this is what we're going to create a dollar a day for those living in less than a dollar a day. Three, that's 360 a year. Now, and they maintain that commitment until the job is done. And if that's 2015, 2025, I think ASAP is going to, our, our target is 2025. If we get that in place, how many donors would be required to raise $10 billion? that you, the students, raised, controlled, and allocated, and measured the results of. Just imagine that you had a student organization that did that. You managed $12 billion. And you managed it much like moveon.com. You raise it through the internet, and you use your blogs, and you use your social networking, whatever you, you can do. How many donors, donations of a dollar a day would be needed? How many people? Each one's a poverty warrior. How many poverty warriors would we need to win this battle? It's incredibly, insanely small. With two million people taking this pledge, we could basically have the resources to focus at the very bottom of the pyramid on that one, one and a half billion people who are being left behind we can get them ready, savings matches, training, other things to get them ready to grab the first rung of the ladder of microfinance and they can climb from there. But we've got to get them to that first rung. Only two million to end poverty on the planet. And if we did that, it would set such a paradigm in place about what citizens on their own can do that you would virtually, in the area of foreign aid, begin to make government almost obsolete. They have other things, postal service, and transportation, things like this, maybe armies. They do armies really well. <laughs> but they can't do poverty. They don't know how to do poverty well. And so citizens need to take that back. And once we show that, that just this kind of, it's like creating a taxation system on ourselves, a dollar a day tax for the planet that I want to see so that my children and grandchildren don't suffer the consequences. That's what we're really proposing. Taxing ourselves and going out and spending the tax instead of giving it to our government. That's the concept. If we do that once, poverty, and I think ending poverty is the easiest of the major global problems to solve, then we've got a paradigm for saying, worked with poverty, Let's go take on global warming. Let's go take on deforestation. Let's go take on whatever. What do we need? And if we want to do it with the cooperation of the political system, with several billion dollars, do you think you wouldn't be absolutely bombarded with visits by politicians? And if you had your own agenda that said, yeah, with this billion or so dollars, we're looking for politicians that will buy into this agenda. This is our agenda. And if you agree with our agenda, 
will support your campaign. And if you take our money and fail to support our agenda, it'll be the last time you ever serve in Congress. We'll make sure of that. That kind of money is the kind of money that other people, like big corporations and lobbying groups, mobilize. And that's why they control the game and not the citizen. So we can do it too. And students, I think, can do it best of all. So that's my challenge to you. I invite you to look at, at ASAP. And then I, I challenge you to create an ASAP chapter here at this university. Shana here is going to be one of the principals. Alexander is going to be one of the principals, right? See, the, the principals always sit in the front row. <laughs> the rest of you remind me of the Irish at an at a Irish mass where all the guys, you know, stand in the back of the, of the church because that can, they get to the pub first once mass is over. They, <laughs> they can run down and be first in line at the pub. So the back row people, you know, they're not leading. So the front row guys, keep your eye on the front row. They, they're, the, they're the power brokers of your, of your student body here. All right, that's my challenge to you. And I'm willing to support you uh, from retirement in any possible way I can. And I'm going to lecture my brains out and advocate my brains out through the campus structures of this country. And I want to get this thing put together in about a couple of years so that we can start getting that money into place in, with the severely poor. OK, we've bounced around a little bit, but that's the comments I had. Now, questions, complaints? Yes. Thank you. That was a, a great talk. We've seen, um, I guess, in the last five years or, or more, that some of the larger institutional banks are showing an, an interest in microfinance. Um, Citigroup, I guess, would be a good example. What role do you see for the private sector to play in developing the movement? Well, the role is that they're going to get deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And the deeper they get into, they will be driven by their own competition among themselves to come down market. Just as microfinance institutions are coming from the bottom up, and they are putting pressure on each other and competing with each other, and there's fallout from that. And then when they have to duke it out with the banking system, there's no way to predict how that's going to work out. But I think the competition between the, let's say, the poverty sector and the commercial banking sector is not going to be that severe because the commercial bankers, uh, there's an adage from the Bible, I forget which uh, verse it is, but remember the one that says, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, you know, than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Whatever psalm that is, I don't know. Well, I modify that. It is easier to pass a camel through the eye of a needle than for a commercial banker to recognize a poor person and make a, lo a loan to him. Commercial bankers don't deal with the poor, don't know how to find the poor. They don't know how to serve the poor, respect the poor. They're just clueless. When they come down market, what they're doing is cherry picking the very best clients that everybody else has been creating from the bottom up, and they're just sweeping them up, and that's great. So that's how it's going to work out. But eventually, the competition in the middle will force a whole lot, I think, of the smaller institutions, uh, nonprofit institutions, lower and lower and lower. And this is no surprise. 
where in that whole ladder of access to capital is there absolutely no competition at all? Ever. With the poorest of the poor, nobody competes for the poorest of the poor. Can you imagine us, you know, as a movement fighting over poverty? You, trying to get, you got my poor people. We got to take market share back from you guys because you're, 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 you're lending to my poor people. It's preposterous. There's so many poor people out there that we need thousands of these institutions working with eight cylinders to get the job done. So if anything, it's, it's let the market play out and everybody finally from that big sorting out, as they recover, they will find their niche or they will die as an institution. And then at that point, we'll see how it works. Yes? I have a question. What is your recommendation for solving problems uh, for people who, poor people who can't even pay back the loans? So is microfinance bank providing loan to the people so that they can improve this, they can reach a stage where they can start paying back loans? Or is uh, some people part of it was just donating money to those people? No, one of the sacred principles of microfinance is that these are loans to the poor. They're never grants. They may be grants to the microfinance practitioner agency that turns around and then makes those loans without capital. But <clears throat> that's something that, um, you know, we've been doing now for, for 20 years, and we know that mo the people we're lending to are paying back. 97% repayment rate is a general kind of norm within our, within our movement. And it's all based on capital with interest. That loans with interest, not even subsidized loans at low interest, but rather it's overwhelmingly loans at commercial rates. The reason being, that gets people accustomed to eventually graduating to the real economy. But if you subsidize them at the very beginning in the interest rate, they, they won't know how to defend themselves when it's time for them to move on. So, and, and one final thing, if you think that's, well, that must be pretty hard on poor people to have to pay these onerous interest rates. But we're dealing with societies where the only virtual source of capital for poor people before microcredit was loan sharks. And loan sharks, a typical in some markets, a loan shark, shark, uh, shark charges 10% a day. You know, I'll give you $100, you come back at the end of the day with 110. It's like, it's just, just preposterous how much they charge. Thousands of percent interest in a year. So if a microfinance program comes in and charges, say, 4% a month, well, that's a tremendous bargain for anybody who's ever had to go borrow from money lenders. And so it's, they, they welcome it. Interest has never really been a problem for our movement, simply because the context for the loans that we're making and the alternative is loan sharks. And, and so the people see it as a bargain. And it's not that we try to extort uh, in, as like subprime lenders to our clients either. It's that we, we're trying to give them access to capital at a rate that we feel they deserve or would get if commercial banks lend to them. 
So just whatever a commercial bank is normally charging its other clients, that's what we would try to charge our clients, a non-subsidized interest rate. Yes? Um, so I know like tax rates to the wealthy doesn't have much of a trickle-down effect to the poorest of the poor. But what about lending to not the poorest of the poor, but maybe someone who lives on $3 a day? Do you think that that would have more of a trickle-down effect than have a larger scale impact in terms of contributing to the economy of certain communities? Well, thanks for raising that point, because it's what's already happening. Uh, most of the microfinance industry got started lending to poor people, people below the poverty line, at least below $2 a day. But in the last ten, five years, so much capital has begun to flow into our movement from European investors, American investors, and much of it in the form of loans. And they want to. They want to move. They have to move that money. This is loan borrowed money, and so they're going out there and to move it. They're flogging their field staffs harder and harder to move that money. And and, and the easiest way to get rid of it is to sort of start moving up market, making larger loans. And so what begins to happen is mission drift. And so today, that's why exactly ASAP is being designed, because ASAP's designed to pick up all those clients that have been left behind by Mission Drift. We were supposed to be reaching them, and we didn't. Now, before we condemn Mission Drift, it's one of the best things that has ever happened to the economies of these countries. Because Mission Drift means that as a nonprofit, you are starting out at this loan level, then you create a loan level at a higher level, and a higher level, and a higher level. That's essentially building new rungs into the ladder of, of financial services. And so now, what started out initially as a ladder with only two rungs at the very top for elites and for corporations in that society, that's all banks lent to, now we came along and started at the other end and started building rungs and they've now the two forces are moving towards the center of the market with their respective uh, products, which means that the poorest person, if they can get on the first rung, they now have a place to climb as far as they can possibly go. And so that's a good thing to fill out that availability of capital. Now it may be that as they climb, their businesses begin to grow. One in 10 borrowers who creates a, like a small business instead of just simply a owner-operated deal. Well, that's, they may start creating jobs for others. And where the real development of employment may occur is more in the middle of the market. And that's a good thing. We need the employment. So, yes, I mean, it's, it's not either or. It's just that that's happening already, and it's a good thing. but is leaving a fifth of the population of the planet behind. Oh, sorry. Um, just going back to the interest rate. If you charge an interest rate around 30%, that, and you expect the person, the borrower, to be able to pay it, you're assuming that whatever they're using the money for is going to earn them a return greater than that interest rate. Yeah. So then, doesn't the loan have to be accompanied with some type of training or education on how they're using the money so that they can make enough to turn on it? Well, I give a, I give a, semi, a workshop on microfinance in universities around the country. And one of the things we work on, spend about two or three hours out of a 15-hour workshop, is actually detailing that model, showing how the cash flow works from the loan, how, they, how often they purchase supplies, how far they mark up to get their profit. 
and then what they have to pay off to their village bank at the end of every week. They've got to separate their capital, their interest, and even a savings payment. But by the way, I know I glossed over this, in village banking loans, it really kind of starts with credit. The more you save, the more you can borrow from the system. Nobody ever borrowed themselves out of poverty, you know? What's really about getting out of poverty is creating your own assets, your own asset base. And so without savings, that can't happen. Savings is absolutely vital. So a lot of our, of our clients, after two or three years in the program, graduate to their own savings, and they're on their way. Great. If, uh, if the interest rate that you mentioned, that 4% a month, which works out about 15% a year, compared yeah. to the amount of interest charged in most developed countries, why aren't more commercial lending organizations going in when there's such a potential for profit? I think just historically, they've seen poor people. Uh, well, they have always worked on collateral. And the one thing most poor people don't have is collateral. So they just write them off automatically as not a client. And that's why they only focus, for the most part, and cherry pick those people who have begun to build collateral. And they're coming up the ladder, and they want larger loans, and they're cherry picking those clients. Well, you know, at the beginning, in a, in a village bank, people start out with not collateral, but what we call moral collateral. It's a group solidarity commitment that if, Susanna doesn't pay off her loan. The, other, the rest of the group takes up a collection and covers that. Well, that's a moral collateral, but it's worked to give us 97% repayment, and the banking system normally can't even get anywhere close to that. So we think moral collateral in these societies of the poor work far better than real collateral. But collateral for a banker is basic, as you've seen. <laughs> you don't have collateral, you're not a client. That was before the age of credit cards, I'm sorry. Credit card companies don't care about collateral. Yeah. Uh, there is a statement that in developing countries, in poor countries, women have more entrepreneurial skills than men. There was a study in my country, in Kyrgyzstan, developing country, the number of women who were engaged in business after the collapse of the Soviet Union uh -huh. was higher than the number of men. And I would like to know, what is the gender distribution of among the clients of uh, Finca clients worldwide, it's 90% women and the rest men. The highest rates of male participation are in the former Soviet Union countries. But still, there's a lot, and in Kyrgyzstan, I think the percentage of women, I don't have the statistics with me, but I think it's like 85% women in the, in the Kyrgyzstan program. But in some uh, countries like, uh, well, in Russia, for example, you know, it's like 30% women. In Afghanistan, it's about 40% women. That's the rest men. But overall, globally, about 90, 90%. Now, we have found that women are more strategic in their use of capital. It, I think it's because women are, you know, they're, they're housekeepers. They're used to managing a home. And that, takes a, that, that really takes some skill. And so they're used to making those kinds of allocation decisions. Men, we sort of have these blinders on and we kind of, if you get a $50 loan in, in a society like that and you're a, you're a corn farmer, you're gonna buy fertilizer with your $50. If we give you $300, you're 
You're going to go out and spend it all on fertilizer. Yeah. Uh, women never, never think like that in our programs. When they get their loan, they immediately start, you know, putting it into little piles and saying, this is money I'm going to use to buy a pig and I'm going to fatten the pig and four months from now when the holiday season comes up, I'll sell it at a premium price and so that's that money. Then this other thing I'm going to do that has a return after a couple months or maybe some vegetables or something, that's going to handle school fees when those carrots come up. And, and, and so they, they sort it out like that, short-term, medium-term, and kind of long-term investments. Very strategic. And the other thing is, of every dollar they earn, on average, 98%, cents of every dollar they earn is going to go into investments that directly benefit their children. If it's men, you're lucky if you get 50%, 50 cents on the dollar invested in their own family. The rest is spent at the cantina or a mistress or whatever men do, you know, outside the household. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you that, do, you, uh, do you think make finance institutions have capacity to satisfy the financial demand of the SMEs in developing countries? Because actually this question came from my experience in Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. Uh -huh. Lots of poor people can borrow the, could borrow the money from the Grameen Bank. Then they establish some micro microenterprises. But uh, when they want to expand the business from microenterprises to SME, like a small enterprises, one million enterprises, uh, most of the cases, the Grameen Bank could not finance them because of the amount of the amount of the you know loan, financial loan, was kind of bigger. On the other hand, commercial banks were reluctant to um, lending up, uh, lending up money to the poor people without the collateral. In that case, I saw so many people in developing countries. There's absence of the SME finance, so even like poor people can establish the micro enterprise. Sometimes I, I was thinking, is this sustainable or not? And then I just wanted to know microfinance institutions have the capacity to satisfy the financial demands. Well, I don't think we can clearly say they do or they don't. I think that's an open question still, and we'll see in the coming years as these systems mature how sustainable they really are and how, how much they can satisfy the demand. But, but what we do know is that many of our clients, microfinance finances them up to a certain level, and then they have the option of continuing up the ladder. Now they are even sought out by commercial banks because they are great loan risks. They've just had a history of two or three years of good repayment. Well, that's a wonderful credential to take to a bank now, and they've got collateral now, and so banks really like those clients. So if you reach that level where you want to do something like start a, a small business, a medium-sized enterprise with, with a few laborers, I think the systems are now capable of delivering that service to those one in ten, that one in ten people, you know, who has that kind of entrepreneurial drive and is going up the ladder. Many, though, they stabilize at the second or third rung at about $150, and they say, that's it, my business. I can't sell any more in the day, me personally. And I'll be damned if I'm going to hire somebody to help me sell twice as much. They can't m break through to the idea of creating a job. Uh, and most of these women are near illiterate, and so they just stabilize their business at X point. But they keep borrowing more and more and more from the program. They're not investing it in their business. And one of the great conundrums, great 
issues in microfinance today that nobody can answer. The research is zero on this issue, is what's happening with that money that's not being invested in the business? Does she have a second and third business? Is she lending money to one of her oldest kids so they can have a business? Is she financing her oldest son's uh, trip to the United States so he can be an illegal immigrant, you know, being a gardener or a construction worker in Washington, D.C., and make 10 times more a day than he can make in his home country? If I was a parent in El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico, that close to the United States, I would, that's the first thing I'd do with my microfinance loan is get a kid illegally into the United States and earning $14, $15 an hour and remitting money. That's a really big deal. So we don't know, though. You know, we don't have the research to prove that and document that. And it's another thing that's an opportunity for students. Students, you're at a great age to do collect data and to research, and you're being trained to be researching. Well, there's just a whole mound of topics that need researching in microfinance. Yes. Yes. Uh, I have been working for the financial institution, mm -hmm. the commercial bank sector, and the, I feel that so there is more and more uh, regulation and compliance issue regarding to the, the to like uh, know your customer thing, the, the anti-monetary laundering system, or something like that. So I imagine that so uh, the microfinance should have handle with such kind of uh, problem, especially so in a developing country. There are a lot of political conflict, civil wars, and um, the tension between the ethnos and the, uh, some terrorism, terrorism thing, something like that. So how so the microfinance handle with such kind of problems? <laughs> I think that's another black box <laughs> that hasn't been researched. That's the kind of thing that's very difficult to get that into an information system and collect uh, routine information from your clients about money laundering, for example, or about illegal immigration, or about corruption, or about any of these criminal kinds of distractions. But I'll bet there's a lot of it. I'll bet there's a lot of it we just don't know. And I'm hoping perhaps out of this graduate school and the relationship I now have with you guys, one of the projects I would most like to help you embark on is creating a research project based on home journals where we would take a stratified sample of a program's borrowers and would teach them a simple cash journal of income and expenditures of the household, day after day after day after day. And we would tell the borrower, your loan is free, this loan cycle, because you're keeping a record. And that's your payment for, for doing this. And it's the kind of thing that their oldest children, especially those with education, can serve as scribes and, and take dictation from the mother and write all this stuff down. So it's an educational thing for the children, it's educational for the family, and then it's really educational when we take all that data and digitize it, put it into a database, and then let the finest uh, macro and microeconomic uh, minds of this university 
document what nobody knows the microeconomics of poor consumers. All our theory, economic theory about consumption is based on middle and upper class consumers. So it's just a big black hole there. And the first students and I think faculty to really mount a project like this could could win themselves a Nobel Peace Prize for breakthrough research in understanding the microeconomics of poverty. What happens day by day? How do they manage their money? We don't know. Any takers? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your institution's been really successful in really different parts of the world. Um, so I was wondering what your approach is in combating like the different social norms and dysfunctional institutions that are present in the countries? Well, okay. Uh, the first thing you do is that you hire local staff. And 99.5% of Finca staff, we have about 5,000 employees worldwide. 95.5% are host country nationals. Another thing we do is we drink from our own well. So as these mothers keep their kids in school with the profits from their businesses, and then we're looking for a new loan officer, we look first to our own clients and say, who has a child who has gotten through high school? Would they be interested in becoming a loan officer? And, and that's really a great incentive for mothers to keep their kids in school as well. We're, in some countries, the biggest employer of the children of poverty in the country because we're drinking from our own well, we're hiring our staff out of that, that base. So when you hire that way, you begin to have a built-in total knowledge of cultural norms. They have to work through, as a credit officer, they have to understand and process that and respond to it in a way that satisfies their clients. I think that's, I think that's the biggest deal. Now, there are exceptions that you have to pay special attention to. We uh, have a program in Afghanistan and in Muslim countries, the law of Sharia forbid, forbids the charging of interest on a loan. Well, if you can't charge interest on a loan, how can you have a self-sustaining microfinance program? Well, we, we met that head on by just going out and interviewing the mullahs and saying, well, you know, what does Sharia permit? And they told us, hey, you know, it's not a big deal. We permit partnerships. So if you want to split the profits with your clients, great. We said, that's a deal. We just split the profits and they don't pay interest. We actually make more money through profit sharing in Afghanistan than we would by charging interest. And because we did that, uh, our program suddenly exploded from 7,000 clients to over 50,000 clients in, in less than a year because we were the only microfinance institution with a, with a Sharia sanctioned, approved, I mean, uh, interest charge. So that's an example of how you have to accommodate for different societies. Yeah. Actually, you, oh no, you've had, <laughs> she's had a chance, she's had a chance. Well, John, thank you for kind of taking retirement to keep the fire under all of our assets. It's fantastic. My question is, what, what do you see as, I mean, it, microfinance is one, is one tool. It's not the panacea. What are the complements to microfinance that really make it more effective? So is it 
girls' education is it hygiene, sanitation, infrastructure, contract law in a given country that really makes microfinance all that much more effective in a given community that you're going in. We just think of found certain things that either need to happen, need to be in place before they even get there. Well, so, okay, it's not the panacea, uh, but it's, but, but the strength of microfinance for me is that it's an infrastructure that you're getting in place that creates an opportunity, which is access to capital. Once you have access to capital and can call the shots of what are you going to do with your own loan, now you've got choices you never had before. So it, I, I, some people say, well, let's offer health, let's offer literacy, let's offer housing, let's offer, you know, and it goes on and on and on. Well, to me, a village bank that meets once a week, let's say we have about 400,000 village banks around the, not that many, 40,000 village banks around the planet. Each one of those is, adult, is an adult education infrastructure waiting to be utilized. Every meeting is an opportunity for training them in whatever you want to do. The problem with the additions is that it can cost money. And, and they don't necessarily generate a return. And so if you're under a lot of pressure to break even uh, and generate a surplus that you can reinvest in your loan portfolio, you know, it's really hard to tell a director in a country, um, forget that and let's go to a health program. Where it comes is that certain programs are far more conscientious than others. And it varies from country director to country director. Some are just, they lead the institution into those kinds of things. Insurance, health projects, um, housing, things like that. But it's not something that's part of the model that's no, just I, automatic. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't mean to suggest be part of thinking. Yeah, I thought it was more other organizations that you pull in or that are there, part of government. NGOs. Well, as we said the first, uh, last night to, to the group that I met with was, the problem with that is that, it's, it, doesn't it sound like a great idea that Finca does what it does best and then another institution does what it does best, which is healthcare, so you just partner. You know, each does what it does best. Doesn't that make sense? We've been ad advocating that for 30 years in development. It never works, it's never sustainable. Part of the problem is, is that the institution that generates the interest return is more financially viable than the institution that's dependent totally on grants. And so inevitably, as they provide you with services, little by little, they start saying, well, actually, can we have this for gasoline so our officer can get out to your village banks? And then the next one is, well, it's almost like saying, do you have a match? And you say, yes. And you say, okay, do you have a cigarette? You know, so uh, it's a little by little they chip away at your cash flow to pay for the services they're offering, which is only natural. And at some point, the host institution has got to say, wait, it's costing us too. So those types of issues make those partnerships kind of tough. But there are programs that are learning to do that. Those who focus on those kinds of things, multifaceted development projects, are getting better and better and better at it. And as those precedents get established, I think that's part of the new frontier of microfinance is, is credit plus. What do you do, what, what have you done for me lately, aside from the loan? And if you don't answer that question, they go on. They go to somebody else's program. 
So it becomes a competitive thing if you're in a competitive marketplace. If you don't start offering the other stuff, you just lose clients.